0: We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr.
1: On today's podcast, I'm joined by Sam Lichtenstein. Sam is the Director of Analysis at RAIN, the Risk Assistance Network at Exchange. On this episode, we discuss Sam's articles about the impact of the Ukraine war on Russian espionage activity in Europe. Just before we begin, we now have a YouTube channel. I've been threatening it for a while and now we have it. So please follow the link below in the show notes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. On there are video versions of the podcast. So if you like to see a squiggly line with your interviews, you can now see a squiggly line on YouTube. If you wish to support the podcast, there are a few options for you. You can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show for £3 a month. We also have a merchandise store at Redbubble. We have cups, coasters, water bottles and tote bags all available on the Redbubble store. Also, if you enjoy this episode, please share it on social media among friends, family, colleagues, cohorts. And lastly, please leave a review on your podcast. Apple reviews help the show get discovered by other people. Apple podcasts in particular love reviews and they really help this show get featured on the app. So please do leave a review. All the links are available in the show notes below. Thank you so much for your support. And without further ado, let's get going.
0: The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast.
1: Sam, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks so much, Chris. Great to be here. It's
1: great to have you on. For the benefit of listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. So my name is Sam Lichtenstein. I'm one of the directors of analysis at Rain, uh, which is a U.S. company, stands for Risk Assistance Network and Exchange. Uh, we yeah. provide a whole suite of risk services, uh, and primarily I help to oversee our team of geopolitical and security analysts. And we look at everything from geopolitical instability in remote corners of the world to broad global trends, a whole host of security issues, everything from cyber attacks to political unrest to Conflict. Excellent.
1: Excellent. Well, today we're going to have a chat about how the Ukraine war has had an impact on Russian espionage in Europe. So uh, we'll kick off. So with the um, on the 11th of April, French authorities announced that they had uncovered a unspecific clandestine operation being carried out by six Russian agents under diplomatic cover Can you talk to us about the significance of this plot and the levels of Russian espionage activity in Europe
2: prior to the war in Ukraine? Sure. So I'll do my best to answer at least half of that, Chris, because I'm going to disappoint you. Uh, On the the first half, perhaps unsurprisingly, we actually don't know very much about this plot at all, um, as is typical when Mm -hmm. these things Mm -hmm. are discovered they typically authorities want to draw as little attention as possible. There are a whole host of reasons for that. One, sometimes the information be quite Mm. embarrassing. They don't want it to come out. Other times they may also be looking uh to protect other sources, other assets, other operations. They don't want too many details, but they do want to publicize it and make the point. And that seems to be the case of what the French did here. So we really don't know very much about this plot other than that According to some of the local reporting that you've seen in French press, it was, quote-unquote, a major uh, an operation that was undertaken by the French Domestic Internal Intelligence Service that goes by the acronym in French DGSI. That's the, the service that's typically in charge of counterespionage. Uh, but beyond that, we really can't say much more. Um, what is notable, though, is that basically in tandem as when the French did this, they also booted out about three dozen other Russian diplomats. However, they singled out these six Mm. in addition Mm. for really engaging in some sort of operation that they thought was really beyond the pale. Uh, So I can't answer terribly, unfortunately, as much as I would like to know the details, uh, what this particular plot was. But it certainly speaks to your second question, which is about the wider range of Russian espionage that we've seen in Europe. And I mean, to, to put it bluntly, the the answer is a very high pace uh, and a very concerning pace. I mean, there have been a flood of warnings in the past few years from governments and officials basically saying that Russian espionage is becoming more brazen. Uh, it's becoming, in some cases, even more lethal and effectively the one of the german intelligence officials said last year it had reached cold war levels which is really all you need to know and put it into mm,
1: comparison yeah no definitely in your article you mentioned there was a former uk spy chief estimated i think we only know a, a tenth of russian spy operations in europe something crazy like that so it's yeah they're obviously very good at what they do
2: <laughs> yeah i mean listen it's inherently uh, difficult to estimate these things but even if you take the 10 percent mm. figure with a grain of salt and say okay well maybe we only know half of them. That That's still a very concerning 50%, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So you mentioned in your
1: article that Russia is more, um, Russia, uh, more than most countries use its foreign embassies and consulates to pursue espionage. Can you just sort of talk to us about sort of why they do this and um, and just sort of about that in comparison maybe to other countries?
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, let, let's be clear and transparent here. Obviously, all major powers use their embassies, consulates, foreign diplomatic posts of all sorts for... For espionage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States does it, the UK does it. Of course, every major government does this. Uh, for the Russians, though, this has really been a particularly notable part of their diplomatic operations. And it's inherently hard to estimate these things, but if you look at the estimates that have come out from foreign governments or press, you really start to can see that compared to the overall number of diplomats in countries, those that are suspected of doing spy work is, is quite high. So, for instance, Belgian press has reported that their authorities think approximately a third of Russian diplomats in the country could be spies. Now, that's particularly notable because not only is is Belgium on its own hosting, of course, a Russian embassy, but you have the headquarters for institutions there, like NATO, like the European Union, etc. So there are a whole lot of reasons why that's concerning. You've had places like Czechia, whose government has estimated almost 40, in some cases, even 50 percent, the estimate has been thrown out there. So No matter what kind of percentage you take it as, and obviously this would vary based on location, you have a disproportionately large number of Russians in a country that are not necessarily there for the reasons they're supposed to be. And this is really notable because Russians diplomats historically in Europe had vastly outnumbered their com- compatriots on the opposite side, meaning European diplomats in Russia. So just for comparison's sake, I mean, I think last year before some of the expulsions out of Czechia, there were like a 130 or so Russian diplomats in the country compared to something like 40 Czech diplomats in all of Russia. So the the imbalance there is quite stark. Yeah. And you mentioned
1: one interesting thing that came up in your article as well. You mentioned that there's been a reported sort of collapse in morale of the Russian officers and potentially their assets since the war on Ukraine. Can you talk to us about this?
2: Sure. So you know, I, I want to be clear. Obviously, a lot of this is is conjecture. Uh, it's of course understandably hard to penetrate what's really going on inside the Russian intelligence services. But I think we can make a number of reasonable ex- uh, assumptions based on what we've seen historically. Some of the rumors uh, that we've been seeing. I always I always love the acronym RUMINT, rumor intelligence. Yes. <laughs> you know, added to HUMINT or SIGINT. You know, yeah. probably the the most used and less least understood, but Rumant is always, always indicative of something. Uh, and I think that's important here. And so it's understandable, you know, if you're prosecuting this war for a variety of reasons, you're likely to start to see some pushback. You can see pushback from people that either have plain ideological opposition, they see the horrendous things that are happening on the ground, and it does not conform to what they think should be happening. You also see, imagine from some people, just practical oppositions. They may actually have no problem with the idea of invading Ukraine, but what they don't like seeing is Russia's soldiers being killed, Russia's image being torn down in the international community. And so whether it's from a practical or ideological standpoint, you can kind of imagine that there's some grumbling going on. Um, And this isn't helped when you see Vladimir Putin, for instance, publicly dress down uh, the chief of the SVR, one of Russia's main intelligence services, which he did on the eve of the war in a widely shared video. I mean, if that's your boss and you see him basically just being, uh, you know, uh, dressed down by the president, it it can't be a good feeling for your own morale. And now as, as the war goes on and you start to see your own country just becoming more and more isolated. You start to see reports of mass purges. For instance, there's been reporting that the FSB, another one of the main Russian intelligence services, has seen over a 100 people that have just been purged from their positions. And one of the leaders of what's known as the Fifth Division, which would theoretically have been in charge of gathering intelligence, preparing the way in Ukraine, supposedly imprisoned. I mean, that's not exactly a good look. Um, and so you can understand that for the average intelligence officer, that's a big concern. Mm.
1: Do you think um, Russian intelligence may have painted a sort of false picture of the potential sort of resistance to, to Russian forces in Ukraine? Because obviously, the war's gone on a lot longer than I think Putin may have expected. And obviously, as you mentioned moments ago, um, there have been sort of arrests and purges of, of senior figures in the intelligence community in Russia. I'd be interested to sort of get your thoughts on that.
2: It's definitely a question I think people are trying to, to understand. <laughs> and I think the short answer is it's probably a combination of things. I I think absolutely there was an intelligence failure here, as we would call it, that there was a complete misunderstanding of what type of resistance Russian forces would meet, what type of challenges the Russian personnel would have on their own, and then the response of the West. So all three parts, I think. The Kremlin overestimated Russia's capabilities and underestimated those of its opponents. So I think there's definitely an intelligence failure just to misunderstand. But I would also imagine that in a very closed system like Russia's, it's very hard to speak truth to power. I mean say what you will about the many failings of the Western intelligence community. And of course, we can say plenty. uh, But at the end of the day, at least ostensibly, the goal is to get the best information that we can in front of our senior leaders. Mm. That's not necessarily the same in an authoritarian state like Russia, where the goal may simply be to provide cover or endorse the clear feelings of the leader, rather than give him the information that he doesn't want, but needs to hear. And if I were a senior intelligence officer in Russia, and I was put before Putin to brief him. I mean, if I had damning information to to tell him, otherwise I would think really long and hard before delivering that. Uh and so I think absolutely there was probably in addition to just an intelligence failure, a desire to paint a better picture, even if intelligence said otherwise.
1: Yeah. I remember that from reading many Cold War memoirs and stuff, that seemed to be quite common practice in the, uh, certainly in the sort of 60s to 80s, where Russian agents were sort of painting a rosy picture about things, and they were taught to write intelligence reports in a certain way. I find that really fascinating. And obviously, it seems to be that practice is still going on.
2: Yeah. I mean, there have been a huge number of supposed leaks of information, from various Russian intelligence agencies mm-hmm. now. The veracity of all of these is highly, highly questionable. However, even if only a few of these leaks is truthful, or even if only a few of these leaks has a small portion of the truth, it's still pretty damning uh, because the basic assumption is that there's a lot of internal incentives within these organizations to paint things as going well, even when information is clearly suggesting otherwise. And I think that as the war has ground on, it's becoming harder and harder, of course, to support that fiction. And so whereas at first you may have been able to paint things in a rosy way, even when one was not the case, now heading uh, after two months, heading into th- month three, it's really impossible to to cover up these failures. Mm, mm,
1: no, indeed. I don't know if you have any knowledge of this, but early on in the in the war, there was reports of some FSB officer who or officers who leaked information about uh, Chechen assassins targeting Zelensky. I don't know if you've seen anything that substantiates that rumor or
2: not. Yeah, there's there was definitely a lot of reporting, uh, a whole number of plots against Zelensky, and mm. again, I think it probably comes down to you can't separate out the precise piece of truth from From what's probably a lot of misinformation, but something in there absolutely is, you know, pointing towards a general feeling, I would say, of the truth, which is even if there was not a specific plot involving these specific individuals at this specific time, in general, I think it speaks to the general assumption that this is something that Russia was trying to do. Um, And either way, I think it's also an interesting note to assume from the other side that Ukraine has done an incredibly effective job during this war with its own propaganda uh, Mm. because you know while of course we all are supporting ukraine let let's not lose sight here that there's a lot of ukrainian misinformation also coming out to paint its activities as more heroic um having more battlefield success than it probably has i mean even just the other day we we learned for the truth which we had all long suspected that this hero supposed pilot of U- of kiev that the ukrainian government basically invented uh to you know up morale and these are of course all things that you know are great from our perspective but, you know, also show that we're also engaging in this sort of misinformation for our own purposes. And, uh, you know, that, of course, just further clouds this picture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I saw a great poster online about the ghost of Kiev. Um And it's the uh, I don't remember the X-Files, but Molders I wanted to believe poster and they've replaced the UFO with the fighter jet. <laughs> 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 oh, I like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Unsurprisingly, there's some great memes and online, you know, uh, photos and things that have just come out. Um, I have a I have a friend of mine at work who actually bought one of those shirts that shows the mm. Russian soldiers uh, mm. on the ship being kind oh, of yeah. given the middle finger by yeah. the Ukrainians on Snake Island. Uh, another great, you know, story that, regardless of the precise veracity of things, mm. Mm. it makes for a really compelling piece uh, of propaganda.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's actually a brand of coffee now in Ukraine that. Has- as those soldiers uh, giving the middle finger to the Russian ship.
2: Yeah, I, I just had my morning coffee here in New York, so I should have bought those <laughs> beans instead. Maybe I'll I'll have to order some online.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely.
2: So, um, with Russian intelligence, what kind of people
1: would our Russian intelligence officers of looking to recruit in the UK and Europe, and what kind of information would they be looking for?
2: Whew. Well, I think the bad news is uh, take your pick. I mean, right mm. now, I think everything <laughs> is on offer. But mm. I think you can kind of divide things if it's helpful to think into two categories. The first would be what would be immediate intelligence goals. And then what are the kind of the long term strategic ones? So immediately, I think, um, you know, the UK, of course, has been really at the forefront uh, of providing weaponry and intelligence to Ukrainian personnel. So I think if I'm a Russian intelligence officer, one of the short term key things that I'd be looking for, particularly in the UK, but also in some of the other European countries that have been at the forefront of that effort has been mm. to gather information on what sort of new weapons may be under consideration to be passed. Some of those weapons could really shift battlefield dynamics. So getting a, a better understanding of what's on the table would make a lot of sense for a Russian intelligence officer to want to acquire. I would also really be looking uh, in the financial space. And this is where it becomes much more intriguing for the average individual because espionage kind of comes out of those classified government channels and starts to affect people's daily lives because now we're getting into concerns that the Russians have over what sort of private banks or other corporations, what actions they may be taking. And so if I'm a Russian intelligence officer, I'd absolutely want to know What new sanctions are being discussed? Uh, What are the actions of private companies that could really have a major impact on Russia's economy? And so all of a sudden. You know, your your average worker at a at a bank or another major UK or European organization is actually a high intelligence value to a Russian intelligence officer. Um, so those are just two of, of the immediate things. But over the long term, I mean, Russia's intelligence priorities are, are vast, uh, but they are going to persist in in the UK and Europe, no matter ha- what happens with these expulsions. I think one thing we often forget about in in talking about espionage is it's not just about kind of the classified government secrets, but a lot of really important corporate sensitive information, technology. I mean, perhaps only China has been a a greater abuser of economic espionage, where it tries to steal valuable data, intellectual property, etc., but Russia is by no means uh, very far behind uh, and particularly as they lose access to western companies operations in Russia they're going to need to rely ever more on clandestine means to get the type of technology that they want for instance if they can't partner with western energy companies that may have really uh, unique and sophisticated technology to say drill in really complex areas they're going to need to acquire it by other means. And if they can't develop it on their own, the other option is stealing it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Over the years, we've had a few scandals in this country with regards to politicians. We've had Chinese donor who is giving a lot of money to members of the Labour Party. We've had a suspected Russian spy working as an assistant to a member of parliament, I think at the Liberal Democrat Party when they're in the coalition government. Um, So I suppose, in a sense, what kind of risk is there? to potential sort of politicians for both lobbying and even overt and covert sort of espionage recruitment tactics?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the risk is absolutely there. Uh, I mean, I don't want to suggest that we're going back to, you know, like the Profumo affair or something, Mm, uh, mm. but you can absolutely see how the relationships that British politicians and other high-profile individuals have can have an espionage effect. Um, so Russia, in addition to recruiting, you know, sources that will actually provide them classified or otherwise valuable information, definitely are also just looking to influence people in a certain way. Um, and of course the uk for you know for better or worse for a long time has of course courted a lot of russian exiles uh russian finance etc i mean i would say some would say derisively london itself has of course been called Londonograd, you know kind of in reference to the fact that there's so much i would say quote unquote illicit uh russian money Mm. floating around so russian influence is absolutely there now i think what does make things a bit different now is that from a reputational standpoint Basically, any British politician uh, or other high-profile individual that's even kind of tangentially connected uh, to the Russian government or even any sort of Russian entity is going to come under severe scrutiny. I mean, you see um, how in uh, in Germany, with uh, the former leader Gerhard Schroeder's still uh, engagement with Russian uh, energy companies, I mean, has just tarnished his reputation, and basically all other German politicians that previously had spoken even If not friendly of Russia, at least tolerating Russia's policies, have basically recanted all those positions. So I think the reputational risks for right now are probably going to limit some of this. Uh, But over time, absolutely, this crisis and this tragedy in Ukraine ultimately will wind down. And then you could go back to another situation where you have a class of politicians and other people that say, listen, we want to host uh, Russian money that benefits our economy. We want to have friendly relations because it benefits if it's the UK and uh, you know, the cycle can kind of start anew then.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, back to sort of uh, morale and things like that. So one of history's most effective double agents was a man named Oleg Gordievsky, and he became a double agent after the Soviet crackdown of the Prague Spring in 1968. Now, I'm I'm wondering, I'm, I'm assuming that the, the Russian war on Ukraine must also be affecting officers who have a conscience, and so we might get, should we say, future Oleg Gordievskys who might turn to Western intelligence. Do you think Russian intelligence officers at the moment are more vulnerable to recruitment by Western intelligence services?
2: So I would say it's a double-edged sword here. Mm. On the one hand, you can absolutely assume that Russian counterintelligence, so those Russians that are basically looking at Western and foreign countries that are trying to infiltrate their services, Mm. that those counterintelligence officers have basically clamped down as hard as possible on all the people within Russian intelligence activity. I mean, If I am uh, a Russian intelligence officer right now stationed anywhere in Russia or, or another country where I'm overseen by, you know, counterintelligence from my own country, I just must assume that every waking moment of my life is now monitored because Russia cannot afford for any of these individuals to defect or pass along information. That being said, I think, you know, as you noted into our conversation earlier about morale out there, there have to be disaffected Russian officers who... If they don't necessarily want to defect, they certainly want to pass along information. Um, and we've seen, I mean, some pretty incredible examples of, of online trolling. For instance, um, the FBI here in the United States, uh, it was reported that basically they were sending targeted ads that were geofenced around the Russian mm-hmm. embassy in Washington so that – Basically, if you were there, it's put up an ad saying, Oh, why don't you report information, uh, to the FBI? And to, to go back to what I had mentioned earlier, it actually used, uh, the FSVR chief being dressed down by Putin kind of as an incentive, basically implying, if this is how Putin treats your boss, why are you going to listen to him come work for us? I also just saw yesterday some incredible report that the CIA, uh, which to be clear has already been on tour, which is, uh, the dark web platform where you can, mm-hmm. um, We're engaged with online. It had set that up a few years ago, but it put out a new call basically saying, any Russian individual who wants to report information, please send it to us here. Uh, And so now, not only is the CIA incentivizing Russian intelligence officers uh, to leak info, but it's basically putting a call out to any Russian citizen who has Mm. information of value to say, there's an outlet for you to do this securely. And so absolutely, I think that out there within the millions of Russians, there have to be some that are frustrated enough and also have sufficient Mm. access to Mm. sensitive information that could be leaking things
1: yeah i suppose western intelligence have to be very careful about uh, what we call dangles which is somebody who is presented as a potential recruitment prospect but in fact they are i suppose would they be a triple agent um but if i don't know it gets, gets too many uh, numbers at that point but i think they would end up being a triple agent
2: chris i've, I've only had one cup of coffee this morning so i'm not ready to <laughs> confront how many you know types of agent <laughs> but yeah absolutely uh you know it's a it, it's absolutely, it's a dangle or, um, you know, what we would also call a walk-in. Somebody comes into a, a US embassy in a foreign country and says, I have information I want to share. Um, and so just as we're incentivizing this reporting, I'm certain that Western agencies are also stepping up their ability to vet this information.
1: Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Because I'm uh, just sort of thinking of uh, uh, James Jesus Angleton, the uh, former, sort of, was he head of counter-espionage at the CIA, wasn't he? And he uh, caused chaos through his paranoia and sense of suspicion that all potential Russian recruits are actually all dangles, um, and he caused chaos and ruined careers within the CIA for many years.
2: Yeah, it's I and mean, listen, it's really an impossible balance to strike. You need mm. to assume that the information that you're receiving gets a lot of scrutiny and a lot of skepticism But ultimately, you also can't assume that everything is merely disinformation. I mean, there's truly, as you already, you know, pointed out earlier in our conversation, cases where individual Russians, uh, have come to the West with a huge amount of information that is incredibly valuable. Uh, and if we just treat all of it as immediately false, uh, we're going to miss out on a lot of really key intelligence insights. So it's a tricky balance, and there's never going to be a perfect no, way indeed, to do indeed. it.
1: Indeed, Well, there's been a lot of expulsions of Russian diplomats, as we mentioned before. So how effective is it to expel known Russian intelligence officers? And does it do more harm to their operations? Or does it do more harm to our efforts to counter them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be clear that In the short term, if you're losing, say, over 400 Russian diplomats in Europe, the vast majority of whom we assume were engaged in some Mm -hmm. sort of spy work, I mean, that's a massive short-term blow to Russian intelligence operations on the ground. I mean, even for a country with as significant as intelligence apparatus as Russia, if you were to lose 400 individuals in the field who were involved in some form of espionage activity, whether it's running agents, whether it's writing Mm -hmm. reports back to Moscow, whether it's pushing out disinformation online, no matter what it is, that's simply a lot of personnel And so most definitely in the short term, there's going to be a significant hit. Uh, I mean... The last time we saw anything of this comparable nature was in 2018 after the poisoning of Skripal in the UK. And at the time, Western intelligence agents, or excuse me, Western governments booted out approximately 150, 160 Russian diplomats. Uh, I mean, right now we've more than doubled that. Um, and I would expect even more expulsions, uh, as the longer the war grinds on. So the scale of what we've seen is really unparalleled. That being said, the effects also going to fade over time. And, and that's for a number of reasons. I mean, for one thing, Russia will simply resend new people. And so that means it'll now be up to the counterintelligence officers in the UK, Europe, the United States to figure out once again, OK, who's a legitimate first secretary of this? Who's an actual cultural attache of that? And we're going to have to play this game again. At the same time, you can also expect that Russia is going to innovate new ways that it can conduct its operations, and including relying on what we would call non-official cover officers, mm. NOCs. Mm. So people that are not covered by diplomatic immunity, that are not operating out of embassies, are not even officially recognized as any sort of a Russian intelligence officer, but act as such. Now, if I'm that person, I'm inherently a lot more vulnerable, right? Because I don't have the protection of my government. If I get arrested, I actually go to jail rather than just being sent on a plane to Moscow. But it also means that I'm a lot harder to find because I don't have any ostensible um, connection to the Russian government. And so we can absolutely expect Russia to start leaning on these people in Europe a lot more. And crucially, just because of the open system of uh, travel within Europe, it's simply just easier to get from country to country. So you don't even necessarily have to have Russian intelligence officers stationed in one country for them to be able to do some things in another. They can simply hop on a train. Uh, And we've tragically seen that in a number of intelligence operations where they've just been brought in. From other countries uh, to carry out operations elsewhere.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned actually uh, in your article that uh, obviously Russian intelligence are prolific users of these uh, non official cover agents or knock agents. Can you talk to us about sort of what are the advantages and disadvantages of
2: that? Sure. So as with all things in intelligence, uh, there's there trade offs in using knocks. Um, so one of the biggest advantages, as I mentioned, is they have no connection to the Russian government, so they are mm. deniable. I mean. Mm. When we boot out Russian diplomats and say you were a spy, sure, Moscow can say, oh, okay, well, this is unfair. They weren't actually doing that. But ultimately they were a Russian government officer. Even if they weren't a spy, there's a clear connection there. There's not really anything Moscow can do to, to say, no, they weren't working for us. Mm-hmm. Well you were a diplomat in your embassy, you were clearly working for Russia. For a non-official cover agent, there is no connection. Um, they may be uh, an, part of the Russian diaspora. They can simply be you know, an individual on the ground that has sympathies for Russia, um, but there's no connection to the Russian government. And so that makes them inherently deniable and really effective for, for Russia, because even if they get caught, Russia can say, well, I don't know this person. He or she was just you know, acting on his own wishes or was doing something privately that we have no knowledge of. Uh, So that's a big advantage. One of the big disadvantages, of course, is that by not having that connection to the Russian government, they also don't have the same degree of connectivity, which loses access to a whole lot of the intelligence apparatus. So if I'm a Russian intelligence officer that's stationed in an embassy, I have all of the secure communications equipment. I'm involved in all the operational planning. I can come and go as I please uh, securely. If I'm a knock agent uh, and I have to get in touch uh, with one of my Russian handlers, it's simply just a lot harder because I can't just show up at the Russian embassy mm. asking mm. to meet with you know the local yeah. uh, KG you know, the local GRU chief you know yeah. uh, I have to do things in a lot more secure way which creates a whole lot more complications um, so there are a lot of trade offs here I mean here in the United States we're of course uh, had a hit show a few years ago that wrapped that was a personal favorite of mine The Americans uh, which I think for a lot of the U.S. population introduced this idea of the elite legal citizens uh, that the Russians had posted here uh, during the Cold War. And that certainly, you know, still still exists to some extent. Uh, but, you know, it's not as though Russia needs to, you know, develop these individuals over, uh, you know, a huge long timeline. Uh, that, of course, does occur. But, You can recruit some of these individuals in a a much faster way, uh, especially if they have ideological sympathies, or I would say in many cases, uh, a sympathy for hard currency, uh, financial motivation uh, for a lot of people, Trump's ideology.
1: These Asians are non-official covers. I'm assuming, unlike a regular case officer, they're probably less likely to be handling other assets. So what kind of tasks would somebody who's got non-official cover be up to, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think this is where the corporate and private sector information acquisition really becomes important uh, because these individuals may be very well placed in private entities that don't have necessarily classified information. But information that's still of significant value to the Russian government. Uh, So, for instance, there was uh, an individual who was successfully prosecuted a few years ago in the United States um, who had been working at a Russian bank in New York. Mm. uh, Mm. And he was passing along information that wasn't necessarily classified by any means. but. It was sensitive in the sense that it had information about, um, U.S. financial policy and economics, uh, policy specific, for instance, in like the oil and gas sector, all things that for the Russian government would be of potential intelligence value. And so having these type of individuals in well-placed parts of the economy can be really helpful. I mean, even something that, you know, doesn't, ex- immediately strike someone as interesting, like say working for a transport company can be highly valuable because if I'm working at a transport company and I have information about what flights are going, what places, what they're carrying, things of that nature, I mean, if I'm a Russian government officer right now and I want to know, okay, what's on the latest shipments to Ukraine, if I have information of that nature, I mean, that's incredibly valuable. Uh, so people that are well-placed, even in positions that don't seem like they would be significant, can have huge importance. Uh, and even if, you know, 95% of the information that they deal with on a daily basis is uninteresting. Yeah. All you really need is a tiny percentage to be valuable for Russia.
1: Mm, mm. Well, I've always been fascinated with the skripal poisoning because I'm assuming the assassins must have had local help because somebody had to do the target surveillance of the Scripples and work out their timings and patterns and obviously figure out how best to get to their house and get away and so on. Um, and I'm assuming that would be agents of non-official cover would be doing that, which might be of locals or, or whoever,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something that was definitely an area where, if non-official cover officers aren't doing it, someone else certainly is, whether mm-hmm. they have a you know a formal title or not. Because absolutely, uh, to prepare the ground for any sort of operation on foreign soil, especially one that's meant to cause lethal harm. Uh, you absolutely need a whole host of people preparing the way. As you laid out, they need to do surveillance. They need to provide lodging for the people that are coming, and they need to do all the travel arrangements. I mean, in some cases, really benign things, but mm. someone needs to do it and make sure it happens. Uh, and so, absolutely, you can have non-official cover officers or officers who may be um, not technically of any sort of, you know, official rank, but are s- local sympathizers who have some sort of kind of uh, buddy-buddy connection where they know a guy who knows a guy. And so you have this yeah. level of separation that gives some deniability, uh, but also allows them to basically help out these really horrific operations that we've seen, not only in the UK, of course, with Paul, but I mean, honestly, a host of assassinations or attempted assassinations on various parts of the European continent. Mm
1: -hmm, Definitely. Do you think, so with these potential Russian spy networks, so um, I'm assuming there might be a bit of disenchantment among some of these recruited assets at the moment. Uh, What kind of risk do you think that presents to Russian intelligence gathering uh, within their sort of spy networks?
2: Yeah, just like there could be a collapse of morale within Mm. Russia's intelligence agencies, you could absolutely see the same with assets. I mean. I uh, would imagine that for some of these individuals who may not necessarily be ideologically committed to the Russians, but who are simply taking, you know, some some money, they may now sit back and think, okay, well, this is actually pretty horrific, and I'm starting to see all these other Russian quote unquote diplomats getting rounded up and sent home. Am I going to be next? Uh, and so, if I'm someone who's been interacting with a Russian intelligence officer, and I see my handler who's no longer in the mix because he or she has been sent back into Moscow, the next logical question I have is, does the authority know about me? Mm. Uh, And so you can absolutely see people either concerned out of ideological opposition to the war or simply out of self-preservation that may not find spying as attractive anymore.
1: Mm. No, indeed. Well, as you mentioned with the Americans earlier, there's quite a few plot lines a bit like that, wasn't it? There was always the tension between the husband and the wife with regards to uh, their operations.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, it's always a risk of relying on human assets is they change their minds. We're temperamental human beings. You know, we get uh, scared and we cause problems and we may start to not be as cooperative as the Russians intelligence handlers may have hoped.
1: Yeah, no, indeed, indeed. So one thing, um, obviously, Russia might be turning to more is uh, cyber espionage. So um, what are Russia's options with cyber espionage, and how may that offer them an advantage over traditional human intelligence?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely that Russia's, you know, cyber intelligence operations that take varied paths are over time going to increase regardless, but specifically now in response to these massive uh, personnel shortfalls they're going to experience in Europe, by necessity, they're going to need to rely on other means to gather information. And so that logically leaves cyberspace. Uh, I mean, cyberspace, as with any, you know, area offers pros and cons. But for Russia, there are definitely a lot of pros. I mean, the first one is that this is something that can be done from afar. Uh, It may sound kind of silly to say out loud, but it's worth saying very explicitly, I don't need to have agents on the ground potentially vulnerable to do this. I can simply have hackers sitting at a keyboard in some Moscow industrial site uh, that are, you know, protected because they're in Russia. No Western intelligence agency is going to get at them uh, and they can do their work remotely. So I mean it sounds kind of obvious, but it's worth saying very explicitly that's a major benefit. Um, another one of course is is plausible deniability. Uh, similar to using Knox It's simply much harder to attribute cyber operations uh, to a particular actor. And then even if we can say, okay, well, this group that we call whatever, let's say cozy bear, fancy bear, you know, we like calling the Russians, the variations of the bears uh, in the cybersecurity world. (laughs) You know, even if we can say, okay, well, they did it. It's still even then hard to explicitly say, well, we know this Russian agency is running this group. And even if we're able to say that, we almost never are able to say individual per Personalities are behind this. Now, there are some exceptions where the U.S. and other governments have actually indicted individual Russian intelligence officers, but those are few and far between. So again, this is a huge layer of plausible deniability for the Russians that they can carry out these op- actions or quite honestly, as we've seen, in some cases, basically outsource them to private criminal groups. I mean, there's a huge amount of collusion both implicitly and explicitly between Russian government officials and Russian cybercrime uh, individuals So if I can outsource a Russian intelligence operation to a cybercrime group, maybe they get a financial payout and I get access to the information that they've stolen. I mean, not only is it a benefit, but I can also deny that it was us. So those are just a few of the the many reasons it can be more attractive to operate in cyberspace. Yeah, definitely. What are the kind of disadvantages then to cyber espionage? Sure. Well, as with everything, like I said, there there is a trade off. Um, so one of the one of the positives that's also a negative is the wealth of information that's out mm. there. I mean, this can mm. be like proverbially, as we would say, drinking from a fire hose of information. Uh, there's a huge amount that's, of course, stored in computer networks. So if you get access to a network that has a lot of information. It's a huge treasure trove for you, but it also means that you have to spend a lot of time going through that network to find the precise information you're looking for. I mean, can you even imagine going through thousands and thousands of emails and PowerPoint presentations? I mean... You know, it, it hurts my brain. I feel like I yeah. need to have some more coffee just thinking about it to <laughs> actually find the one, you know, like the one piece of information that I really want that's in there. So I would hate to be, you know, like the poor intern at one of the Russian intelligence agencies who's forced to go through, you know, all these boring emails or something to find what's important. Yeah. Another one of the big trade-offs is, is in terms of, is in terms of the security uh, of some of these systems. Yeah, there are a lot of digital vulnerabilities, but It also means that the moment one of those vulnerabilities is patched, you might lose complete access to what you've had before. So if you were relying on some sort of, you know, software that hasn't been updated and all of a sudden the organization updates the software, patches the vulnerability, literally, you know, the next minute you may have lost access. Uh, And so... A human agent, uh, yes, a human agent could be fired or reassigned, but generally may still have access to an organization, even if he or she kind of suffers a setback in his or her career, uh, or there may be other ways to penetrate that organization. But if I was relying only on this one cyber means and it gets patched, mm. kind of tough luck.
1: Yeah, indeed. Indeed. We sort of briefly touched upon it earlier uh, with our talk about sort of uh, misinformation with regards to the war in Ukraine. But um can you talk to us a bit about how Russia uses sort of information warfare and how it plays a, an important role for their security strategy?
2: Sure. So, I mean, this is one of, I think, the most intriguing aspects of Russian espionage, which is fundamentally they they somewhat see information warfare and cyber warfare kind of more generally as different than we do in the West. Um, and it kind of starts from a, a different slight foundation. I mean, typically in the West, we frame kind of a, a distinction between being at war or at peace. Uh, now, that line obviously is, is blurring quite a bit, uh, but for the Russians, that line started to blur many years ago, and basically they adopted a mindset where, all right, we're not going to be officially in armed conflict, but we're also not going to be at full peace here. We're going to be somewhere in between where there's kind of this persistent, low-level confrontation that at times spikes. And so because of that, we need a way to continually Engage in that kind of middle ground, and perhaps the most effective way they've been able to do it is through kind of information operations. Uh, And interestingly, here for for the Russians, uh, there's kind of a a distinction in how they even talk about information warfare that's different from how we do it in the West. uh, Of which, cyber is a persistent part of their overall information warfare means. They're not separate. They're basically a fusion of these two ideas, and so the cyber domain for the Russians, is basically inseparable from information warfare, whether it's about finding information and then leaking it, uh, creating up complete disinformation and spreading it, um, taking information that has a grain of truth to it and amplifying it. So the difference between disinformation and misinformation. But any way you look at it, abusing information uh, to exploit weaknesses in an adversary.
1: Yeah, they seem to be the masters of it. I mean, certainly, arguably, the 2016 election and online kind of culture wars, there do seem to be occasional Russian bots or or certainly connections to Russian intelligence of revealed later on after the fact. And I I think they seem to be very good at that and seem to have a, um, you know, real, uh, yeah, real handle on that as a strategy.
2: They definitely do. But I, I also don't want to make the Russians out to be proverbial Really, 10 feet tall. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, we, of course, have also gotten a lot better at detecting. Their operations. Um, the Russians have also been really clumsy in a lot of things, um, in not trying to cover up some of their um, their clear hands mm, in in operations. Mm. And so, ultimately, you know, I think the the Russian information warfare campaign has absolutely been effective, uh, but it's also not something that's kind of this unique, you know, godlike capability that the Russians have. Um, you know, it, it, right now, for instance, in, in Ukraine, we've seen Russians spread a whole lot of misinformation and disinformation, uh, but, you know, so much of it can be easily punctured. The problem is that once it finds its way into communities that are receptive to receiving that type of disinformation and misinformation, it's harder to counter. So i so my my honest thought is it's much more important for us to get better at kind of the defense uh in tackling our own issues where some of these online spaces exist than worrying so much about the russian offense because ultimately if we can kind of desensitize uh some of our online users and mitigate some of honestly the just the societal challenges that we have it's going to make the receptivity to those Russian narratives much less intense.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, um, what do you think the future kind of holds for Russian cyber operations? Ooh, uh,
2: I think the future is, you know, uh, to to steal a phrase from my home state of New York, excelsior ever upward. Uh, <laughs> I don't see them slowing down at all. Uh, just increasing kind of the diversity of tools that they're using, uh, increasing the operations that they're they're looking to conduct. Uh, they know that this is an asymmetric capability they have. Um, it it hits on a lot of the, the advantages that I mentioned and and many of which I didn't get into, uh, but I also think that the information warfare space is changing a bit, mm. uh, whereas it's not just focused from the Russian perspective on acquiring information. It's almost becoming as important for the Russians to simply question and denigrate information. And what I mean by that is, listen, the Russians, like all great powers, are always going to have a need for classified, sensitive information. They will always seek to gather it. And especially at a time when they're becoming more isolated in the world, they're going to have an ever greater need for information. But they've also... Clearly, picked up on something that's an inherent vulnerability, particularly in Western societies where there is a free flow of information, unlike, say, in Russia uh, and other places where where they uh, have similar political systems. And that is essentially the Russians have figured out that they can spread all this misinformation, outright disinformation, and leak otherwise truthful information at inopportune times to basically make us question any sense of what the truth is to begin with Mm, and mm. that to me is ultimately the more dangerous thing Uh, because if we can not even agree on what the actual truth is about something you really can't get much farther in a conversation or debate about how to progress as a society. And so for me, I think that's the most concerning evolution of Russian information operations in that it's not merely about acquiring information, but actually questioning any information out there and therefore questioning what the fundamental truth actually is.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, uh, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, when when you start sowing you know, the seeds of doubt about what is and isn't true anymore, it's um, it does make it very difficult difficult for any meaningful debate to happen. So yeah, I think they've definitely got very good at muddying the waters, as we say.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's something that i would i don't want to say keeps me up at night uh because i don't think my wife would like to hear that i i lie away mm. thinking about these type of things uh but definitely something i think about during my daytime when i'm at work <laughs> mm,
1: mm. <laughs> excellent well well, sam thank you so much for your time today is there anything else you'd like to add um before we wrap up today
2: sure i mean uh at the risk of getting uh too high on my proverbial horse i would just say as i just mentioned i think a lot of the best reactions that we as a Western society can have to Russia really begin at home. Mm. Uh, and it's not necessarily just about blunting Russian capabilities, but also about inoculating our societies better uh, to their misinformation, disinformation tactics. And that mm. starts with the political paralysis and partisanship that we see across the West. It starts with about bringing us together and recognizing that we are uh In a, I hate to say it, but kind of the proverbial same team, uh, that we share fundamental interests in a way that no matter our disagreements on certain policies, our worldview, our outlooks are fundamentally different than how Russia sees the world, at least how its leadership sees the world. Uh, and ultimately, I think so much of our, our, you know, best reaction to, to Russia will begin at home rather than abroad.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's uh, wise words. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work?
2: Sure. So probably the best place to start is to go to rainnetwork.com. So R-A-N-E network.com. Uh, you can find out all about uh, the overall Rain company, all the offerings we provide. Uh, and then if you want to find out specifically about some of the the work that we do uh, at Worldview, which is our main geopolitical platform, you can go to worldview.stratfor.com. So that's worldview.st dot com.
1: excellent well thank you for joining me today sam
2: thanks so much chris it's been a real pleasure
0: thanks for listening this is secrets and spies